is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, hello, everybody, once again, and welcome to the Enter Sad Men podcast. And of course, we are the only hard rock heavy metal show where we review and rate and then rank rock's greatest albums. And we're creating the definitive hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame growing every episode and of course you can visit our website which is www.entersadmen.co.uk to check out everything we've done so here we are in episode 23 which is rock by numbers we'll explain more in a second uh, but before we do that we should just have a chat about episode 22 uh, last time out i'm here as ever with my great friends Mark and Steve. How are you both? Brilliant, actually. Really good. Really good. I'm looking forward to this because I think this week's going to be a really interesting week. So, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, I think I think a, a review of episode 22 will be a lot easier than second-guessing what's going to happen in episode 23. That's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah I'm well. I'm well, mate. Very well. Very good. Yeah, so uh, episode 22 was the first of our producer episodes. Uh, Tico Torres's Tombola of Topical Themes and Tunes, or whatever it's called this week, threw up um, our producers and uh, the brilliant Max Norman. And uh, we picked three of Max's best produced albums. Mark went for Sabotage's Power of the Night. Steve went for Delirious Nomad by Armoured Saint. And I went for Euthanasia by Megadeth. Your reflections on last time out, gents? I well, it was a it was it was a good week for me because um, it, once again, as has happened quite a lot over the last twenty three weeks or twenty three episodes, um, my prejudices and um, discrimination was laid bare because obviously I walked into the the episode thinking that Delirious Nomad was not a particularly good album and came out loving it. So, yeah, because it had been a long time since I'd, I'd listened to that. It was nice to reacquaint myself with Euthanasia. I think that's been, it's been a long, it had been a long time since I've listened to that one as well. And Power, um, Power of the Night by Sabotage was an album that I hadn't listened to in years and years and years. So, yeah, it was a good week. It was a good week. And it just showed, didn't it, the breadth of, of ability and, and talent that Max Norman had. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you what I liked about it most was that, you know, we, we've gone through it, so many sort of, you know, lights and shades over the previous episodes, different hues of this um, this great religion that is hard rock and heavy metal. It was just nice to have a week where we just got our heads down and banged away to three right good rock bands and right good rock albums. And it was, um, I don't suppose we'll be doing that too often, but it, was, it just it just it fused perfectly. It was, it was a really good week. It was a riff fest, wasn't it? It was completely yeah. a riff fest. And all three albums um, showed just what an amazing producer Max Norman is. Um, the sound on all three was was superb in terms of what it, what he got out of the bands and and the, and the sounds of the songs. Um, a theme that I'll come back to for uh, in a few times this evening around the quality of production. But yeah, it was uh, it was great to um, to go through and celebrate his genius. Right, so we better get on with episode 23 then, which, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is Rock by Numbers. Our brief this week was to select an album 
that either in the band name or on the front cover of the album has some numbers. And uh, Mark, do you want to share which album you selected for us to review? Yeah, so there was there was there were a few that obviously I considered. I'm sure you guys did as well. But eventually, I plumped for um, a band that I don't think is particularly well known, um, but is by those who do know them well, they're fairly highly regarded. So I brought along uh, "When the Mirror Cracks" by Q5, a Seattle band from 1986. And Steve? Yeah, I, I was only going to go one of two ways, and that was either 1984 by Van Halen or 7800 Degrees Fahrenheit by Bon Jovi, and I went for the latter. Why did you select that one of the two? Well, for, for, for no other reason than um, we've, we had a couple of Van Halen outings during the show so far, and we haven't touched Bon Jovi yet, which is odd, given that they're you know, one of the world's greatest bands. I thought it was um, about time we brought them to the party. I also chose them because... I knew damn well who you'd bloody well pick. So I wanted something that I was really, really comfortable with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, you would have been so disappointed, you two, if I had chosen anything else. But uh, the wonderful 2112 by Rush. So those are our three albums for this week. Let's have a little listen about what we'll be talking about. So, uh, the first album of the night. I'm kind of glad we've got this out of the way relatively early doors because I was dreading this particular review. (laughs) It is the, um, well, I don't know. Richard is going to tell us whether 2112 is the fans' kind of definitive Rush album or whether that is actually Moving Pictures, which obviously we talked about um, in episode 
too. Nevertheless, 1976, we're winding back the years. Richard, talk to us about 2112. Opening album sleeve notes. Okay, 2112, let's get through the facts, shall we first? So it was Rush's fourth studio album. Uh, It was recorded uh, early in 1976 and released, um, which I think is appropriate for the discussion we're going to have uh, in in the next half hour or so on April Fool's Day uh, in in 1976. Uh, It was uh, recorded uh, in uh, Toronto Sound Studios uh, and uh, produced, as so many albums were, by Terry Brown uh, with Rush, released on the Anthem label, uh, which was an independent label owned by Ray Daniels, who was Rush's uh, manager at the time, but then uh, distributed uh, by Mercury Worldwide. Geddy Lee is uh, on vocals and bass guitar, Alex Lifeson on uh, various guitars, and uh, Neil Peart, um, uh, who's a a very amateur drummer, um, uh, um, plays a bit of percussion as well. And... um, a link to last week, uh, Hugh Syme, who was well-known for his album artwork and did the album artwork for 2112 and did the album artwork at the last episode uh, for Megadeth's Euthanasia, uh, also played um, a number of synthesizers on a couple of the tracks. How did it do? Well, it, uh, it didn't chart at all in the UK, uh, but it was Rush's breakthrough in the US. Uh, where it uh, reached the heady heights of, uh, of number 61, but then, of course, went on to be gold in the UK and multiple times platinum in, in the US. bit of history in terms of the, the album itself. Its origins really came off of the back of uh, you know, the, the tour of the previous album, which was Caress of Steel, um, Russia's third album, which was not particularly well received, certainly by the critics and and not by the fans either. And they had a pretty poor tour for Caress of Steel. Uh, indeed, Alex Lyson referred to it as the Down the Tubes tour. And they kind of knew that they were in the Last Chance Saloon as a band in terms of their record deal. Mercury were considering dropping them. We, we often forget, I think, when we see all these super successful bands that in bands' early years, uh, just sort of, you know, how close to the breadline uh, they're, they're, they're running. So here's Rush. They've, they've done their three albums, but they're in financial hardship. Indeed, after they'd finished touring Caress of Steel, Alex Lifeson went back to his home and worked petrol pumps and did plumbing for his dad to earn a bit of money. And Ray Daniels, their manager, mortgaged his house for the third time to keep the label and his number one band uh, going. Mercury pressured Rush to provide a more commercial album because uh, Caress of Steel was hugely conceptual um, and Rush doing things that even as a Rush fan I at times don't understand. But Geddy Lee, Alex Lifeson, Neil Peart decided that actually um, with the stuff that they'd written on the Caress of Steel tour, um, that they were going to go ahead with what they wanted to do uh, for their fourth album. Um, and uh, and if they lost the deal with the record company, then fine. And Alex Lifeson did uh, say that basically if they were going to go down in flames with 2112, at least they would go down in their own flames. So they, they wrote it on the tour, were fairly well prepared for the studio, 
and uh, and went in and recorded it. I think in in around in around a month. There was a big argument about its release with the record company, but everyone took a risk. And uh, I suppose, as they say, the rest is history. <clears throat> Just for for context, so I bought the album because it was the album. It was the Rush album that everybody had to own. So, nineteen eighty one. Moving Pictures to a brand new album, it hadn't achieved the status that clearly it has now. So the definitive Rush album at that point was 2112. Everybody who you know was anybody and had any kind of pretense of being self-respecting owned it. Therefore, I had to own it. Therefore, I bought it. I put it on. I took it off, I think, probably about four minutes later because I just didn't get it. And I, I've always thought, well, I must be missing something because everybody raves about it. You know, it is... It is held up as you know, a, a career-defining piece of work. So I, I clearly was missing something. So over the years, I have attempted to listen to it again and you know, with slightly older, hopefully wiser ears. And I still, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I tried it, probably you know, eight, nine years ago. I still, could, still didn't get it. So I knew this was coming. And I was dreading it. I was, genuinely was because because I'm either going to sound like I was either going to sound like you know ignorant kids, or I was just going to upset a whole load of Rush fans. So um, I have spent a lot of time with the album over the last week or so, and um, yeah, I get it now. Would I listen to it again out of choice? I don't know bits of it probably, but I don't, I, I don't dislike it. We'll get onto the detail. There are bits of it that I really don't like. Um, there are bits of it I really don't like, and there are a lot of it that I don't really get, but I understand why it is revered in the way it is. Right. To any of you out there that don't know what this is about, side one on 2112 essentially has, as far as some people are concerned, one track, which is 2112. It has seven parts, but um, it is you know, one continuous piece of music that tells a story of uh, a, a future world controlled by these priests that a man is living in, is quite happy with the world until he discovers something and then tells his story. I'll leave it there. It opens with an overture. The start of the overture is a uh, lovely sort of spacey synthesizer and then drums, bass, guitar all cracking. We get a lovely galloping middle part uh, with a solo. With this track, I think Rush announced exactly where they want to go with this one. When I started to put this on again for this episode of the pod, I hadn't looked at the sleeve notes or the, the track listing, so I, I couldn't understand what the hell was going on. And because I wasn't listening to it on vinyl, so I didn't have the gatefold sleeve, I was completely unaware on the first listen that this is a story. So my initial re reaction was, this is an extraordinarily pretentious piece of wank. Um, and then you, Richard, explained the, the missing part of my jigsaw. So, yeah, it's, um, as Steve says, it's a bloody brave way of starting an album that is supposed to be a bit more commercial than the last one. The two, the two parallels I've, that I've drawn straight away with, I, I like Overture, by the way. It's a, it's a really nice, rocky start to an album. Supper's Ready by Genesis, 1972, Foxtrot. It probably took me 25 years to kind of figure that, to be at a stage with that 
that you are now, Richard, with 2112, where you know what's coming. You know everything about this track. It took me a long time to be in a position like that with Supper's Ready. So I can't be beginning to do this justice critically after two weeks, two years minimum, surely, to, to even have any kind of a clue as to what's going on. But I go back to my original point. Storylines aside, you're going to wax lyrical about the story, and that's been brilliant. You know, God bless you and all who sail in you. I actually don't give a shit. All I want to know is musically what I'm listening to and is it any good? And um, the other parallel I was going to draw was um, Dark Side of the Moon, which I've always said was just one, was just two tunes, side one and side two. This is just slightly more overt way of doing that, I think. I always thought that was pretentious, by the way, as well. But yeah, as starts go, I'm enjoying this. Yeah, and I quite like, I quite like Overture as well. So Overture gives way to the Temple of Syrinx, the introduction to these high priests, the controllers of this future world. I mean, musically, very similar to Overture in terms of the phrasing and um, uh, the bits of the, the structure. Describes this sort of logical future world where everything's controlled by computers uh, and the instruments of old are banned and every uh, people's will and their thoughts are controlled. Geddy Lee is singing at the very <laughs> top of his range. I think to to try to portray these controlling priests, uh, I, I read a review that uh, said that basically Geddy Lee sings like someone who's got his thumbs in a screw. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure he's singing, Rich. I think he's straining, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he spits opinions, doesn't he? Does, does young Gedwood? And I, I like his voice. I do like his voice. Um, I think he's absolutely right for the band. I think in Temples of Syrinx. I dare say there is a purpose to it by the story that they're writing about. Um, but I just think he's straining and he spoils a little bit, a decent chugging riff, I think. The Priest of the Temple of Syrinx has been a rather irritating earworm for me over the last couple of days. I keep singing that bloody phrase. But I really like that track. Yeah, I think Geddy Lee is stretching for a lot of it. And there are points where you're kind of wincing a bit. <laughs> Overall, I think perfectly decent song. So track three, uh, or part three, is Discovery, which is our main subject, uh, finds a guitar behind his beloved waterfall. This is for everyone listening, apart from Steve, who wouldn't give a shit. Uh, but yeah, he finds a guitar behind a waterfall. Starts to learn to play. He learns pretty fast, actually. He's playing a good tune within about a minute. This was done, I don't know if you read, in the studio in a haze of marijuana. So Alex was uh, pretty high when he uh, was recording some of this uh, this particular uh, track. And Geddy restrains himself here, doesn't he? He's singing quite softly and, and gently. The whole song is just uh, Get- Geddy singing over Alex's guitar. This is actually the point where I did start having a look at what this thing was about. Otherwise, I'm saying to myself, well, why, why have they put a sound check on? Why have they called it discovery rather than sound check? So that's where and I um, had a look at it and, um, and then started to kind of you know, understand the storyline that's running through it. And having done that, the track makes sense. And it's a perfectly nice interlude. It's a long interlude, but it's a, it's a perfectly nice piece. I like it a lot. It just sort of floats along. Yeah, I echo that, really. The truth is I've quite enjoyed the album. Like I say, there are bits of it that I just... It's not I don't understand the, the music. It's that I just don't know why it's there because it just doesn't seem to fulfil a purpose. But I guess it did in their minds, addled with good quality hashish. I mean, I, think, I do think we need to, we do need to 
talk about the story a little bit because it's almost interchangeable with Footloose. It's, it's, yeah. It is. <laughs> it is. I mean, the only difference is that Kevin Bacon didn't commit suicide at the end of Footloose. Uh, but it is. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's about oppression, isn't it? Effectively, it's about uh, it's the Truman Show. It's Footloose. It's it's about living a lie, and you know. But the really interesting bit is that the film Ready Player One is based almost entirely on this song. But the book certainly has a lot of Rush references in it, a lot of Twenty One Twelve references in it. So, yeah, you know, it has it, it's got its place. It's got its place in in literature, but it is it is just a pre runner for Footloose ultimately. <laughs> talking about the oppression onto the the fourth part which is presentation where our subject i'm hesitating to use the word hero uh, presents the guitar to the priests of course who are unimpressed and ultimately um destroy the instrument uh in, in front of him following presentation uh is uh, the oracle i believe in father christmas by greg lake <laughs> it is <laughs> it is. I didn't even clock that. This is my favourite part, the Oracle. I love the way it, it, it builds and the, the ringing chords and Gillilee's singing again is a bit more restrained. The, the Oracle gives our subject a view of what could be uh, in worlds that are free and creative and uh, he gets a, a, a glimpse of where he'd really like to be. I think you like this, Richard, because it's classic Rush. Right. This is the clearest indication of where this band was going to go. Soliloquy then I mean, starts off very quiet. I, mean, there's a, I think a very, really good solo from Alex Lifeson uh, towards the end and obviously ultimately represents the point at which our subject dies. And that then gives way to the grand finale which is just full of huge ringing chords. I mean, from the day I first listened to it, I thought, this is the Who. All three of them massively influenced by their respective instrumentalists in the Who, and, and this just has the Who all over it. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's the best part of the song. I mean, not, not for that reason, but it is a massively Who-style song. You know, it's big and it's rocky, this. Still complex and still quite cluttered, but um, this is the closest to some sense of order to all this, and it brings it home nicely. Well, I guess you could say they've assumed control. Okay, so I don't get that reference. Explain that reference. Neil Peart, I think, said, was it Hitchcockian twist at the end of the song? What the fuck? I don't... What is that? What is it? Who is assuming control of what? Why is it a twist? I don't get it. Uh, I, yeah, I, well, I've always thought is basically there's this guy... Who's brought a guitar to me? Uh, I smashed it up. He killed himself. Um, attentional planets of the Solar Federation. Normal services resumed. This pipsqueak who thought he would change the way we did things. No. Back to normal. Normal services resumed is what I always thought. At the end of it. No. But that's not much of a twist on a story. He said he wanted to give the song a, a, a Hitchcockian twist at the end. So I wondered whether it was because it was all members of the Federation, is the announcement, it's, it's to all, all members of the Federation, we have assumed control. So I assumed whether it was a return to a to the previous order. Anyway, so 
side one ends on that cliffhanger. So let's flip this record over. Uh, and side two is the more traditional side of an album made up of five separate and, as far as I understand, unrelated tracks. And it starts with a passage to Bangkok, a tour around the best marijuana producers of the mid-70s, given that they were smoking a fair bit of it. A bit of a nice light-hearted break after all the seriousness of side one. I think for me it's got a lovely exotic, almost bit of Eastern feel to it, and the melodies and the, the chords. Good bit of fun for me to start side two. I think it's dynamite. I mean, I, I, this is an album of two halves. I mean, that's stating the obvious, isn't it? But I just like side two an awful lot. I think the tunes are all fantastic, all five of them. I love it. I think a passage to Bangkok is just a brilliant way into it. I can even forgive them that stupid little Hong Kong fooey, which they seem to repeat a couple of times. I think it's a great song, great guitar hook, great chorus. This is what I wanted. I'm getting overtones of children's telly themes, really, with this. <laughs> it, I, and I can't quite put my finger on it. It's, it's almost like Rainbow. Now, I'm half expecting Bungle to come out at some point. There's, and it's only, it's only slightly, it's only in bits of the phrasing. I, I'm quite indifferent to this track. Track two on side two of 2112 is The Twilight Zone written by Neil Peart about the TV programme. Uh, he was pretty obsessed by it. Uh, saw a lot of the episodes. Um, as simple as that, really. Uh, just talking about some weird stuff. Um, and I think musically as well, it's quite a- atmospheric. Uh, they use some very interesting effects. Um, if you listen to it on headphones, Getty's voice moves around inside your head. Uh, I don't quite know how they've done that with the, the, the sound effects. But, uh, yeah, I again, I, I really like this. Uh, lovely sort of slow wafting chorus, some spooky guitars in it. One you really have to, I like listening to with my eyes shut. Geddy Lee moving around inside your head. Are you sure you weren't smoking the stuff that he was referencing a track before? <laughs> try it. Honestly, try it. It's weird. <laughs> I, I've put, the, the two words I put down here are haunting and melodic. I think this is—I think this is a real thing of beauty. This very chilled, and it's a really chilled solo that brings it home as well. That's um, just a, just a really good, just a really good piece of work. Yeah, it's my favourite track on the album. I think there's something sort of Simon and Garfunkelish about some bit as well. Mm. Um, and uh, but there's there's a there's a bit of jazz in there and a bit of funk and. I think it's beautifully put together. Yeah, I really like this. And Twilight Zone gives way to Lessons, track three on side two. And this uh, was a song written entirely by Alex Lifeson. Um, so, you know, traditionally in Rush, Alex Lifeson, Geddy Lee write the music and Neil Peart uh, writes the vocals. Uh, Alex on this uh, writes the whole thing. Is anybody else getting a massive dose of Zeppelin? Yeah. And you can tell it's written by a guitarist, this track. Hmm. It's all about about the guitar, isn't it? Yeah, I was getting some Who again as well. Um, Yeah. Massively, massively influenced by Led Zeppelin. This is where Geddy Geddy Lee got his vocal style from. Robert Plant 
pretty much exclusively. Alex Lifeson, his two biggest influences were um, Pete Townsend and, and Jimmy Page. Well, I was going to say that you can you can really hear Percy in his uh, in Geddy Lee's vocals in this, can't you? It's, it's as close as you can get to Robert Plant without actually being Robert Plant. Again, really strong song. This we haven't mentioned um, we haven't mentioned Neil Peart either much. And I was just I was looking at this. I was watching this on. Um, on YouTube and just reading the forum underneath, and some bloke alerted me to the fact that there's a point in this, and Rich, you'll love it. You'll probably know it. There's six hi hats in quick succession, which just oh, yeah. sounds so odd, unbelievably odd. If you, when you pick it out, but kind of within the track, who does that sort of thing? <laughs> so talking about Neil Peart, because you know, I know it's one of your favourite subjects, Richard. How much of an innovator was he? I mean, we know he's not a timekeeper. We know that he's you know, in, incredibly gifted. But how how far did he? Because because Steve says there's some stuff in here that you just don't hear anywhere else. So did he move the art of drumming on? Or well, I mean, you're asking the wrong person because I'm. Of course, I think he did. You know, if you had a scale, you know, a range of drummers who were um, who almost pl- just played incredibly improvised and with their heart versus the real technicians. He's certainly the real technician end of things. He, I mean, he. He really saw it as an instrument that he wanted to be the very best he could be at it. And then he would learn it and teach and, and learn, learn, learn. So, so he was you know, incredibly technical. But I think the big thing was he brought so many different styles and genres of drumming into what he tried to do. And that's where you get the things like the, the, the rhythm changes and the, 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 the six hi-hats. So he had this huge encyclopedia of stuff to apply, and um, and I think from that that's why he, he was just set you know, up there as someone that so many other drummers wanted to aspire to. Yeah, but we've got Tico Torres coming up soon, so I'll give him a run for his money, won't it? <laughs> I have to say, we'll get on to it, Steve. But listening to these albums back to back, I did get to a point where I was thinking. My God, that's a bit simplistic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think I could do that. When you compare it to, to Neil Peart, it's just going, yeah. yeah. And Lessons, a song written by Alex Lyson, gives way to a song written by Geddy Lee, which is Tears, the next last track on side two. Big change in mood again. It was very sort of quiet, melancholy Starts off with some lovely acoustic guitar and really melodic bass. Neil Peart being pretty restrained on the drums and uh, some strings via a mini Moog synthesizer played by Hugh Syme. Yeah, like the, the start of that always reminds me of um, Dusk off um, Genesis's Trespass, um, which is you know just a wonderful song. So I like that element of it. The, 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 I'll go back to Geddy Lee again. I don't think his voice is right for a song like this. I just I just think he's I don't, I don't like him straining, and I don't think he's a great balladeer. I just, he's a rock singer. <laughs> I, th- this is my favourite track on this site. It, it's, I actually think, thinks he sings it. I think he sings it really well. Um, there's a hell of a lot of emotion in this. I think there's some. This was written with some truth in it. This song, um, and at times in my life, this has brought me to tears. For me, this is a bit of a misstep. I mean, I, I think it's a perfectly good song. I'm just not sure it fits on this album, that's all. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was Tears and 
the album finishes with something for nothing. So it opens a really sort of clean guitar and bass. I, I love love the way the drums come in. Uh, you know, quite a light verse trots along quite nicely, um, and then the the chorus comes in. Yeah, I think it ends the album fairly powerfully in my view. Lee calls it his dead balls to the wall rocker. He's also said it's, it's, it's somehow a bridge back to side one. I'm not sure I quite get that, but I, this is my favourite track off the album. Actually, I just I just think it's a powerful bit of rock. Yeah, I think the link back to side two is, is, is side one. So the link back to side one is that he's at his screechiest and the and the, and the power of the of them as a as a trio, isn't it? It's the it's the closest that side two gets to side one. That's that's really interesting. This, do you know what? This shows you how different the three of us are. How, you know, we agree on so much, but we are polarised in some of the stuff because I, I can't be doing with this track at all. Isn't that, isn't that odd? The chorus drives me nuts. The rest of it I, I buy into, but then they go and ruin it with the chorus. <laughs> T- taking Mark's cue there, then our highs and lows here could be... Interesting. Should we start with Steve? <laughs> I haven't even done the maths on on side one, but the but the low is twenty one twelve. It just is. I mean, I, I just don't need to, I just don't need to explain it. The high, I um, I love passage to Bangkok and the Twilight Zone, um, but they're just trumped by something for nothing. Mark. <laughs> so uh, my low is something for nothing, and. My high is is Twilight Zone. What I would say about twenty one twelve is I wouldn't choose to to play it. I wouldn't choose to play it in in its entirety. So therefore, that brings the score for it down a little bit. I think side two is the better side, but then it's it's closer to the rush that I like. For me, uh, my low is Lessons. My highest on side two is. Tears, as I said, and I know that for me that it's going to share top billing with twenty one twelve. It's been interesting digging into this again and um, listening to to it with a a critical eye, a critical eye. Listen to it with a critical ear. I still love the story, and it still grabs me uh, like it did when I bought this album in nineteen eighty or whatever. So uh, yeah, um, I said tears and good old twenty one twelve get top billing for me. So there we are. We're at the end of our first album of this episode, and we move out of the 70s and into the 80s, where Steve will introduce us to our next set of gentlemen. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so there you go. Finally, belatedly, we bring Bon Jovi to the Enter Sad Men party. Not before time. Yeah, their second album, seven 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Critically acclaimed, no. Fans loved it, hardcore fans loved it, and this is an album that basically divides opinions and has done from day one. Released in March 1985, recorded about six-week period just before that, released on Mercury in the US, Vertigo in the UK, recorded at the warehouse in Philadelphia, and the producer, and herein lies the story, was Lance Quinn, who helped him out with the first album as well. Now, I'm probably the wrong man to talk about production, so... I'll, I'll defer to Richard later, but John Bon Jovi basically didn't like this album at all, and he was very critical of the production of it. And I do wonder if 
that wasn't kind of just a cheap shot at someone, a kind of scapegoat to make up for the fact that Bon Jovi's writing, in his view at least, wasn't at his best, and the album he never really liked. He was looking for someone to um, carry the camp for it a bit. Because my memory of this is buying it on vinyl in 85, and I don't want to hear it remixed, remastered, re-fucked re, re up. I want, it, I want it for what it was, and that's the album I remember and I rejoice in. Um, the fact that Lance Quinn produced it could have been Bob Rock, but it wouldn't have been Bob Rock. It would have sounded very different. doesn't matter. The point is that's what I got, that's what I bought, that's what I loved, and nothing will change that. Nothing will alter that fact. So, yeah, so this is this, this is classic Bon Jovi lineup. This is John Bon Jovi on vocals, Richie Sambora on guitar, Alec John Such on bass, Tico Torres drums, David Bryan keyboards, the album... You don't have to like it to know it was a, it was a it was a big hit. It took a while, but went platinum in the US two years after its release. Reached 28 in the UK charts in May '85. Reached 37 in the US charts um, a month later. The Bon Jovi story we know it well. John Bon Jovi was a, just a teenager immersed himself in in music in New York City and was always around sort of recording studios and recording people. Had little bands on the go as a teenager. Um, and one of those bands came up with a demo tape, um, which included what would go on to become one of their big hits, Runaway, got some airtime on radio station in New York, and alerted the boys at um, Polygram. And this is a big deal. So John Bon Jovi, who was already, already with David Rashbaum at the time, made some phone calls, got some boys in, Tico Torres on the drums, got in Alex John Such on the bass, got in Dave the Snake Sabo, um, but he didn't last long, went off to form Skid Row, Richie Sambora came in, and the rest is history. So they went in into the recording studio and did their first album, and that was the year before. So this is this is 7800 Degrees Fahrenheit. Now, before I bring the boys in on this, I just want to read you a quote. There's a kind of couple of quotes I've melded together from, um, from John Bon Jovi, who said, with the Fahrenheit album, I was a novice in the field. The first album takes your whole life to write. The second album, you've got six weeks. I read in magazine how artists X, Y, and Z would shelter their tapes, lock them up in a closet so no one could hear them. So I said, that's what you're supposed to do. I never played the second album for anyone until it was done. Big mistake. He went on to say, you know what's funny is the album sold twice as many copies as the first, but it's my least favourite album in retrospect. I always overlook the second album, always have, always will. Well, John, if you're listening, you're wrong, mate. You're absolutely wrong. This is just genius. This is a... Has it got flaws and missteps? Well, yeah. But then Bon Jovi always will. This is just a brilliant piece of work. Bon Jovi had been going downhill from day one. No mistakes. Their best three albums were their first three albums. Bon Jovi, their debut album, was just different class. This was a really brilliant piece of work. And so and 12 months later, they were the biggest band in the world when they brought out their third album, Slippery When Wet, which compares favourably with this. I don't think Bon Jovi were any better than when they did this. Okay, Uh Production. I've not got this on vinyl, so I don't know if what I've been listening to is the original mix, but the production is awful. <laughs> and I don't think it's John Bon Jovi who should be complaining about it. It's Richie Sambora. His guitar is hidden, absolutely hidden. And there are some fantastic riffs he's playing, but you have to go and dig for them. It's as if they... Um, they <laughs> <laughs> Imagine him, you know, put them, put me in in a corner of the studio. So, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Um, I can understand 
why John Bon Jovi made those comments. From a songwriting perspective, it's interesting what you just quoted, Steve, because I didn't know that. Uh, my view as well on this was that it it it, it did feel rushed. I, I felt on whilst there are some standout tracks, there are a number of tracks for me that are average, um, and I don't think compare favourably to the albums on on either side of this. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd echo everything you say. John Bon Jovi also doubted his own voice as well. He had real questions over his own ability to sing, which is, you, you don't imagine a guy as, you know, beautiful and stunning and rich as he is, sort of rats with self-doubt, but he clearly was throughout a lot of this stage Bon Jovi story. But yeah, there are some average tracks on it. I couldn't agree more, but when they excel, boy, do they excel. I want to say, first of all, I hate it when bands disavow their early work. I think, you know, it's all part of the journey. I think creatively it's a you know it's a it's a step this is I think if you were to say what which rock album most effectively demonstrates that notion of the difficult second album that everyone talks about I think this is it I think for Bon Jovi this is an album where they're not entirely sure which way they're going to go whether they're going to go back you know for the pop rock of the debut album or whether they, they're going to take it on a step, and they do take it on a step. Um, this has always been my favourite Bon Jovi album. Um, I think it's the point at which I think you can hear the invention, um, or maybe it's them wrestling with where they take the band, uh, where John Bon Jovi takes the band. So you get quite a lot of invention on here. There are a couple of tracks that I really don't like at all, one track that I really don't like at all. But, I, you know... Production be damned. I, I just think they are great tunes, all of them. Um, and I think the, intri- the, the, the the proof for me of the quality of this album is, by my own standards, is I struggled with a couple of the tracks when I first got it. So King of the Mountain, for example, when I first bought the album, if you'd asked me then what's your least favourite track on the album, it, that would have been down at the bottom. Listening to it now, I just think it's a brilliant piece of work because it's it's completely different to anything else that was going on at the time. And I think that's the thing about this album, is that it is a, a, an album that delivers music, tunes, styles, invention that nobody else was doing. And yeah, there, there's a glimmer of the commercial kind of behemoth that they're going to turn into. But yeah, the, the, it's, it's almost like this is the album of growing pains, isn't it? This is the album where they're struggling through this sort of their teenage years, you know, in terms of, if you want to think of it that way, and trying to kind of find out what adulthood is going to be like. And I love it. I think it's just really raw, really honest, and great, great tunes. So, seven, eight hundred degrees Fahrenheit. As I say, Bon Jovi's second album. It is a ten-track beast. Five on each side. Side one features uh, "The Price of Love," "Only Lonely," "King of the Mountain," and "Silent Night," and is kicked off in synthesizer heaven by In and Out of Love, um, since played incidentally by David Bryan, who was David Rashbam on their previous album, apparently changed his name because he got fed up people asking him how to spell it. Um, so anyway, I'm back in Donington, 1985, and I've been there before because I was there when Rats were on a previous Enter Sad Men with Out of the Cellar. And what's interesting about that, Bon Jovi just come off a tour supporting Rat. Donington in 85, Rat was second on the bill, Bon Jovi were fourth on the bill. Anyway, and they weren't a big gig at the time. We look back on 
Donington 85 as all these massive headline acts with Metallica stuck in the middle of the two of them and ZZ Top and whatever. At the time, it didn't seem that because none of these boys were really famous. I mean, none of them were. And we had Magnum and Marillion sort of offering the, the English alternative. So this was the first time I'd seen Bon Jovi. They were fourth on. They didn't steal the show, but they were bloody good. And they played seven songs on that set, three of them off 7800, and one of them was In and Out of Love. And this was perfect. I just listened to this and I'm taken back. You've had Stephen Piercy with his swagger and his sass, and you've had James Hetfield with his menace and his venom. And then onto the stage comes Bubblegum and Candy. And it was... And I'm 20 years old and I'm thinking, I want to be you. I want to be that man running across the stage, pointing the mic at everyone. This side, left side, right side, American flag, more scars than Tom Baker's Doctor Who episode. Just incredible. It was an absolute treat. I hear In and Out of Love and I'm there. I'm back there. I just think it's it's the song. Yeah, it's just a great sing-along, like so many of these tracks. Really great sing-along. Love it. Love it. <laughs> it's a great way to kick off the album, isn't it? You, you're really excited at this point because it's, um, yeah, it's a riot. It's an absolute riot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing I remember from that show, Steve, was A, the American flag. He wrapped himself in the American flag, didn't he? Which was a brave thing to do in the East Midlands. Yes. Um, in 1985, but, when when the masses are still pissed off, there's no decent new wave of British heavy metal band on that year. But I also remember him twirling the microphone and dropping it. But anyway, back to the album. I think this is a really good opening. It's really strong. I think it's as good as anything they've done, actually. Um, and as I say, this is my favourite Bon Jovi album. Uh, I would pick this ahead of Slippery uh, every day of the week. And I think this is this is just a top top tune. It's one of the best songs they've ever done. I mean, what what amazes me is, despite John Bon Jovi's misgivings about this album, the fact that he really has just deleted it from his memory, hasn't he? And they don't play any of these tracks live anymore. Why the hell aren't people hearing this played live anymore? Standout track, typical Bon Jovi. It really. Yeah, sets the scene for a lot of what you're going to hear in the next album, doesn't it? In terms of its its style, its structure, brilliant. Mixes shit, but it's good song. Yeah, and don't get me started on bands refusing to play their early stuff. The the thing that pisses me off about bands like Bon Jovi and and especially Def Leppard are they completely they forget completely who put them where they are. And it drives me mad. I hate it when bands disavow their early work. I completely agree. Because it's, it, 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 it's what made you you, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not apologising on his behalf, but they do play Runaway Live. They do occasionally throw in Roulette or, you know, Breakout or things like that. It's this album he's got the issue with. So first misstep, well, it goes into The Price of Love, track two, which is... Yeah, it's an okay track. You know, it's it's got a really fabulous back end. There's a, the, the the pre-solo, the solo. It's all fine. It's not a, it's not my track too. Wouldn't be my track too by any stretch. I think this harks back to the first album. You could have put this on the debut album, and it would have been absolutely perfect. So yeah, it's um it's you're right. It's a perfectly decent song. Disagree. Yes, my first word I wrote was fine, and I, I think it's a really good point, Mark. That if this is John Bon Jovi, what is he? He's about 23, 22, 23. 
kind of song you write. Right, exhibit A. This is spoiled by the production. The guitar riffs on this song are fantastic, but they are so low in the mix and completely dominated by the, the vocals and the keyboards that the song loses any real sense of big rhythm. I think they said the potential to be a really good second track if it was mixed differently. Completely agree. Luckily, there is track three, which is just the phenomenal Only Lonely. And you can only turn this up and play it very loud. Turn this bitch up because it's a proper rock song. Comes out, comes out slow and oozing and John Bon Jovi is spilling his heart, angst galore. It's full of passion and emotion. But, man, it rocks. This is a really, really beefy rock song. Um, one or two singers off the album made uh, number 54. <laughs> Just bizarre, isn't it, to think of a Bon Jovi single not breaking the top 50. Um, I just think it gallops along, absolutely gallops along. I love it. I love it. Um, doesn't do it for me, this track, I'm afraid. What about the video? Do you like the video? Oh, I love the video. The video, the video is pure class. <laughs> this was written for MTV, wasn't it? I mean, this is um, this is dripping with MTV-itis. I, I really, I, I'm with you, Steve, probably not quite as kind of gushy about it. But no, I really like this. But I think, again, Richard, it comes back to the point you made, that the guitars are so low in the mix, because, again, this has got a stonking riff on it. Um, and so, too, the fact that Mark couldn't have and now loves, and I'm I'm with you, I'm with the early Mark on this. I still can't quite get my head around King of the Mountain. I just find it all a bit ponderous. You love it, Mark, obviously. You become acclimatised. Yeah, acclimatised to it. I think love is is probably taking a bit far, but uh, I think what I like about this is it's a different style, isn't it? It's a different piece of experimentation, and I think that's why I like this album so much, is that it's not predictable, and this track certainly isn't predictable. So, yeah, it, I think it's it's one of those songs where you have to you have to give it some time. You have to listen to it a few times. But it's got a really good sing-along chorus. Yeah, it has really got a good sing-along chorus. This was a grower for me. The more I listened to it, it really the hook. Yeah, I, I get your point earlier, Mark, around if this was a an album where they were exploring some different avenues, then yeah, I guess it makes makes sense that this is here because it is very different. Listen, if, if, if this is only a, this is a six out of ten track, you know, it's been that for thirty five years, so I ain't going to change now in, in my eyes. So there you go. So from a six out of ten, Silent Night is one of the world's greatest ballads. There's just no two ways about it. Bad balladeering, as we've seen before, is crap. I mean, I, I, I hate to hark back to Long Cold Winter because basically a really good album ruined by one, arguably two bad ballads but ballads are part of the rock armory and you've got nowhere to hide if you do a bad ballad if you do a bad rock song you just get away with it can't you well they've tried but it's just not worked a bad ballad on a rock song on a, on a rock album just just doesn't work this is just phenomenal this is just so so i mean the man's bearing his heart big time and there's a lovely richie samboris solo and tico can't be asked as usual even his little drum roll at the end is so lazy and half-assed but you know what? I couldn't. I, I just. I could not give a shit. When we saw Bon Jovi at um, oh Hammy Odeon, November '86, we were there with our lighters out. We were, weren't we? We were there with our lighters out, and we loved every minute of this. 
and we loved every minute of it and we'd have been wiping away the tears. And I still love every minute of it. I just think it's, I just, I probably shouldn't, but I do. Richard, do you want to put him right or shall I? <laughs> you put him right and then I'll give my view. This is a monumental piece of shit. It really is. God, would you like any more saccharin with this? It's, yes! No. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, you're you're wrong on so many levels. This is awful. It's awful. It's the worst track on the album by an, an, an extremely long distance. And yes, you're right. I was there with my candle uh, light. No, sorry, no, my lighter, not my candle light. That's <laughs> it. I, I'm there with my lighter in the air. Yeah, I was 21, and that's my defence. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Rich, Rich, come to my aid. When I first heard this, I thought, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it's grown on me. And uh, off of this entire album, this is the one that keeps singing in my head. In a good way. In a good Well, yeah, I, I suppose so. I suppose so. Yeah, I mean, and so it's not, it, it, it's not my lowest scoring track. It, it's towards, it's in the top half. Oh, God, long, broken record. Again, some of uh, Sambora's power chords in this are immense and they're absolutely hidden. So, again, this could have been even better. I think Lance Quinn could have helped me out by hiding all of it. Honestly, you two, no. <laughs> no. Just no. I think, you know, what I did was have a think about it compared to some of their other songs of you know in a similar style you could have the debate around you don't want any of this super sweetness on any album in any form but they do do that this is one of their better ones yeah and and they ended side one on bon jovi with love lies they ended slippery on side one with wanted that or like and and also whoa, whoa whoa wait a minute wait a minute you cannot possibly be you cannot possibly be mentioning Wanted Dead or Alive in the same breath as that part of... Oh, no, no, there's a, there's a time and a place. And, yeah, um, Rick is right. Bon Jovi do plenty. I mean, all right, she don't know me, things like that. You know I mean? They, they do this sort of stuff. Look, it's not the worst ballad they've ever written. That accolade, frankly, goes to Never Say Goodbye, but it's not good. Steve, don't even refer to stories. After all the bullshit on 2112, don't even talk about... <laughs> Point taken. Well, there you go. So that split opinions, didn't it? The, um, the sign off the side one. But luckily, we've got another side to come. Um, side two, the hardest part of the night, always run to you, to the fire, secret dreams. And it all starts with the curious musical box intro in the first few lines of a Japanese folk song, called Sakura, Sakura, which means cherry blossoms, crashes into, unmistakably and quite simply, the best damn rock song that Bon Jovi ever did, beyond dispute. We'll come back to ask you why in a second. Yeah, this is amongst the best ever great side two track ones, isn't it? I've always felt it's kind of the sequel to Runaway. And again, they should be locked up for not playing this live at every blooming show. Just superb song. Fantastic riff again. Guitar's a bit higher in this one. You can just about hear it. Still too low, but superb vocals, 
Brilliant guitar, great rhythm, super. When I played this for the first time, in fact, this goes for most of side two, I just had a massive grin on my face. I just thought it was it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I was looking at, um, going back to what we were saying, I looked at set lists, and this is, perhaps unsurprisingly, the most played track of 7800 in Bon Jovi history. Um, and it's 25th on their list of most played tracks. How scandalous is that? And I'll bet you there's some bollocks from New Jersey that's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bear in mind that, but, you know, this has been around for 35 years. It's, um, I think that's criminal, but there you go. That's their call, not mine. Yeah, I just think it's... Uh, echo everything you say, it's just a, just a brilliant rocker, punctuated, of course, with that, you know, the great start and, and, and then that legendary conversation about... John Bon Jovi finding himself in a doorway. And then it just goes off into the big finish and the, ah, it's just pure, pure rock genius. I adore this song. Yeah, can't argue with that. It is trumped by the next song, in my view, but um, it's absolutely brilliant. I love Tokyo Red. Right, I've calmed down after the the best rock track that uh, Bon Jovi ever did, which means that the one after it cannot be, and it's the hardest part of the night. Yeah, first single off the album, reached number 68. Not an atypical start, keyboard into guitar, into vocal, and quite one pace. Love the chorus. It's, it's a good track. I think it's better than that, personally. I think it, I think it's um, it's a brilliant sort of power tune. And it's got a chorus to die for. I think everybody's on top of their game on this. Uh, no, impressed with this track, actually, for me. It had real promise in the first eight chords that Richie did at the start of the song, and then they locked him in a cupboard. So I just feel it's it's an okay power ballad. It's fascinating, isn't it, our different views? I yeah. just think this is a patch on Silent Night. I, d- I don't know why Roxette have just popped up on Bon Jovi album, personally. <laughs> oh, this is price. I love this. I just love this so much. <laughs> oh, dear. Also, I can sense the desperation in your voice, Rich, as well as every poorly produced track goes by. <laughs> Just getting more and more fed up. <laughs> um, well, I'm deliberately giving this 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You can't please all the people all of the time, can you? That's 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 the moral of this episode, anyway. Um, but what we all will agree on is that Always Run To You is next and is fucking brilliant. I absolutely love this song. It just steams. It steams. Love the start. Love the way it gathers pace with Torres' drumming. Um, then the pause into. The clock strikes 10. Oh, it just smokes and all. Just a brilliant, brilliant song. Agreed? What he said is, oh, I love it. I love this song. Uh, yeah, there's a decent riff and uh, you can actually hear it. But I'm afraid that all good things have to come to an end, and the same is true of 7800 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, 7800 degrees Fahrenheit, by the way, is the temperature, I believe, at which rock liquefies. Molten rock, that's what we're talking about here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, we, we were, um, but now we're up to to the fire, which is, yeah, you know, Bon Jovi does Genesis's Mama, does Ultravox, does something, I don't quite know what. It's also quite monotonous. I'm not not a big fan of To The Fire at all, really. I really like this. <laughs> I really like it. Oh, it's got loads of atmosphere. Yeah, I don't... I, yeah, it's it's dripping with 1980s stuff. You know, lots of keyboards. You're right. You know, there's a bit of Ultravox in there. I, I get all of that. 
but I really like it. I, there's nothing wrong with this. Yeah, it's not the highest scoring track on the album. Damn sight better than fucking Silent Night. I'll give you tell you that much. No, it doesn't do it for me, I'm afraid. Fucking hell, you So anyway, so from To The Fire to um, to the final track, which is Secret Dreams, which is the only song for which Tico Torres receives a writing credit, and it's nice of him to have done something on the album. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not bothered about this. It goes on too long. It's not the first track, which is improved by, you know, Richie Sambora's presence, and which Rich would like to have heard louder and more of. Loses marks at the end for a desperate bit of Bon Jovi straining when his voice sounds like it's gone. Yeah, it's an okay finish, but you want a big finish and you've not got it. I think this is a, a decent finish, actually. Not top draw, explosive, brilliant, but I think it's a decent finish and better than a number of other tracks on side two. Great riff at the start, but again, get, get, get a, a few bars in and it's buried under a pile of synthesizers. And the, yeah, sorry to mention it again. Like the lyric, like the melodies in it, vocal melodies in it. Nice sing-along to end the album. Yeah, not bad. Could have been better. Yeah, I, I echo that, Rich. My only observation at the end of all of that is if you don't like your stuff buried under keyboards, I don't hold out a lot of hope for Q5. <laughs> yeah. yeah, OMD does metal. Yeah, that's going to be quite something, isn't it? Just uh, to respond to that, uh, it, it's one's expectations going into an album, I think. As I said at the start, I'm just, just so disappointed on the, in, the, in the production on this because it's there uh, and certainly... When you listen to the first album, <laughs> it, it's there. So I don't know what happened to it. But, okay, so I think, my, my personal theory is, John. it's all very well, John Bon Jovi, talking, you know, bad-mouthing the production, bad-mouthing Lance Quinn. This is a this is a cabal. You know, Bon Jovi is, is run by, effectively, two people, which is David Bryan and John Bon Jovi. And it's no coincidence that they are the highest elements in the mix of this album. So this has got nothing to do. I don't think this is Lance Quinn. I think this is this is vanity. If there is an issue with the production, it's vanity. And actually, I don't mind the fact that Sambora's guitars are down in the mix because I think if you take it for what it is, which is a keyboard rock album, then it's a perfectly decent, well, it's more than a perfectly decent it's album. Than that. Absolutely agreed. So, yeah, I, I get that, Richard. I think if you're coming to this going... I want to hear Richie Sambori, you're going to be disappointed by the album, definitely. But anyway, that was seven, 800 degrees Fahrenheit. You better have the highs and the lows, boys. Rich, what's, what's your high, what's your low? So the propping up are the duo of hardest part of the night and to the fire for me. And at the top are Tokyo Road and In That I Love and Tokyo Road shaves it. Good call. As a man with taste. Meanwhile. <laughs> right. Silent Night, frankly, if you know, they could have buried all of the instrumentation on the album as far as I'm concerned. It's a pile of pants. And I think for me, the highs, it's a dead heat between Tokyo Road and Always Run to You. Tokyo Road for me, it's 10 out of 10. Um, and my weak point is to the fire. And we move on. Mark, do you want to talk us through tonight's wild card? Opening album sleeve notes. Okay, yes. So we go from uh, one keyboard-heavy album into another keyboard-heavy album with Q5 
and When the Mirror Cracks. So Q5, this was their second album. The first album, which was called Steal the Light, was really a straight up and down hard rock album. It bombed commercially. And I think it probably opened the door for Floyd Rose, uh, who was the guitarist with Q5, but also a producer in his own right. I think gave him the opportunity to kind of take the band in a different, more AOR direction. So Q5, When the Mirror Cracks, it was released in September 1986, recorded late 1985 and early to spring uh, 86, released in the UK on Music for Nations. Produced, as I say, by Floyd Rose at his own Floyd Rose Studios. And for this album were Jonathan Scott Kay on vocals, Floyd Rose on guitar, Rick Pierce on guitar, Gary Thompson on drums, who also engineered the album, and Evan Sheely on bass and keyboards, an important man in this release. It didn't chart either in the US or in the UK, and the sales uh, were relatively low, so mm-hmm. the change of musical direction didn't really serve the purpose that I suspect was intended. Um, they based in were based in Seattle. Interestingly, they've kind of uh, reinvented themselves, uh, released an album back in 2019, or I think, or 2018, which is very heavy, um, very heavy album, you know, very guitar orientated, completely different to this. Um, it's uh, a 10-track album, five and five, side one, living on the borderline, Your Tears Will Follow Me, Never Gonna Love Again, Stand By Me and When the Mirror Cracks on side one, and then side two, Run Away, In the Rain, I Can't Wait, Cold Hearts, and let go. So, as I say, this marked a significant departure from the band's debut release a year before and didn't perform well. Uh, either of them did, uh, neither of them performed well. And they kind of disappeared from sight after this. And as they reemerged about two or three years ago with a new album, Jonathan uh, Scott Kay, who has a different name now, also released a really kind of almost thrash album a few years ago as well. So clearly that was where his kind of inclinations lay. This was a very different beast. I brought, I picked it because I think it's an interesting album. Um, Is it going to make the Hall of, you know, the top 10 in the Hall of Fame? I very much doubt it. Um, But it kind of grew on me when I got it. I bought it in 86 when it came out, largely based on the cover, uh, which at the time was kind of very technologically kind of avant-garde. Um, looks pretty dated now, but yeah, there you go. I like it. Uh, do I love it? I love bits of it, uh, but I like it broadly. What do you two think? I'm looking at the Q5 entry on Wikipedia. I've got two things, two queries. First of all, what's the K stand for? No idea. No. Um, and the second one, I'll, I'll pick an issue with the fact that Q5 is an American hard rock heavy metal band. This is This is a long way from heavy metal, and it's questionable whether it's hard rock. We're talking since rock. This this takes me back to the mid eighties. I could name check a dozen different bands who this sounds like, from Great White to Dokken to White Sister to Treat. There's elements, even a bit of fast rate. There's elements of all that and more in this. And yeah, we're, uh, when we say synth rock, we're not talking a, a lone keyboard here, are we? We're talking an absolute wall of fucking electronica driving this beast forward. A lot of decent tunes trying to get out. All feels a bit disjointed. And as I said to you earlier, Mark, I'm glad I didn't review this after just one play or a couple of plays because it has grown on me massively over recent days. It's a it's a really catchy effort, flawed in many ways, 
but some nice tunes, some good solid rock, and anything that takes me on a journey back to the mid eighties is generally all right by me. Richard, I just think this is an AOR album. I was drawing actually comparisons to Strange Ways uh, yeah. when I was listening to this. I've really enjoyed it, and like Steve, it's grown and grown and grown. Um, it took a, a good few listens to get on its wavelength. The more I've listened to it, the more I've enjoyed it. I, I'll mention again production, poor production being a, a theme of tonight, and this album suffers from it as well. I don't know, I didn't look up how many other albums or just how much production experience Floyd Rose had, but I don't think he covered himself in glory production-wise on this um, of course, interestingly, being a, a guitarist, and it's fascinating that he's decided, oh, I don't think I like the sound of me very much. I'll turn myself down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true. So that Strange Ways uh, link is very evident right from the start, and I think the album uh, sets out with living on the borderline um, as it kind of means to go on, really, we we're assaulted already by the keyboards. Very little evidence of any guitars. Yeah, I, I think I like I like this thing. It's got a lovely hook line. I like Jonathan Kay's voice. He he reaches on some of the album a bit, but yeah, I like this. I think you know this is a perfectly good start to the album. Yeah, I, I like this song. I don't think it's the an opener. That's my only issue with it. I think um, this feels like a middle side one kind of track. But I suppose it does set out the stall of the majority of the style of the album. So, Steve, what is the right way to think about this? The right way to think about this is it's a very good opener. I'm thinking of Dave King as a singer. I'm thinking very much fast way, that that sort of style. And he's better when he's, um, he's, better when he's restrained. Yeah. I'm with you on that. He, he he can lose it, can't he? I just really like this opening track. I think it's um I, I think he gets the album off to a fantastic start. I love the groove that runs through the verses. There is a solid solo. A lot of the solos on this they're not that inventive, but uh, you know they don't have to be. It's just it just flows really really nicely. It's it's a it's a really good starting point for the album um, and better than a lot of what's to come. I'm honest. So living on the borderline gives way to your tears will follow me. And it's more of the same, really. It's, it's slightly punchier. Uh, it's got a kind of nice nice little riff running through it. It's quite derivative, I suppose, if you're going to be critical of it. There's nothing in here we haven't heard from other bands, and there's nothing in here that we haven't heard done better by some other bands. But it, I think it, it's quite nice in the way it bridges that gulf between kind of out-and-out rock and a sort of more considered melodic approach. We have to be quite careful, don't we, when we can't, when we keep name checking other bands. Because if you're if you're chasing the the MTV pound or dollar in the mid '80s and playing the music that's pretty much everyone else does, they're all going to sound quite similar, aren't they? And it, it, it's just it was just a, an accident of the time, really, wasn't it? It's not a criticism, just an observation, isn't it, that they sounded like a lot of bands at the time. It's it's just just how it is. It's difficult to elevate yourself. Yeah. I, th- I think this is a better song than the opener, probably because it's got a bit more guitar in it. I like, yeah, I like the. It's got a nice chuggy riff to it. Uh, I think it's well structured, good chorus. Production comment of this song is you can't hear the drums. 
drums are so far back in the mix. I don't, to me, it isn't a wall of sound. It's a wall of synth. And again, th- these songs would be a lot better uh, for for more, more drums and, and more guitar. You know, you'd have more, you know, there'd be more rhythm, there'd be more punch. If I've got one criticism of Kay, if I can call him that, it's his propensity to oversing the choruses, and he does it throughout the album. And, I, and it gets quite repetitive because... Well, he sings high on them all, and they're, and 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 they're not short quite often. Yeah, I think that's true. That he is, um, he reaches on quite. He's he's at the top of his range for a lot of the album, isn't he? Yeah, but a very catchy mm. song. Your tears will follow me is followed by Never Gonna Love Again, which personally I find a bit whiny. I think it's one of the the low points on the album. Actually, it's it, it's a bit wishy washy. Doesn't really know what it's doing where it's going or why it's there. Um, it's a bit like me in life, really. <laughs> it, it starts off with those keyboards, which I, I swear are on a storyteller's night by Magnum. Yes, yeah, they are. You're right. I hadn't picked that up. I've got, I've got this down as a poor man's love song, and he's a poor man's Jeff Keith. All I would say is it's better than Silent Night. <laughs> no, we're never going to love again, you and me, my friend. <laughs> even even I would agree with Steve there that you're wrong. <laughs> so we come to track four on side one, Stand By Me, which is coincidentally and appropriately the standout track on the album, I think. Lovely chorus, yeah. nice chuggy riff. I know we shouldn't do comparisons, whether it helps our listeners just understand what these bands sound like, particularly the ones they may not have heard. This, to me, is Survivor, right in the AOR camp. Side one ends with the title track, uh, and if you wanted rock, well, you've got it now, haven't you? This kind of rockets along, doesn't it, Uh, when the mirror cracks? Yeah, no, I like this a lot. It's a good way to end the side. Dokken in their pomp was what I put down. It's... um... Uh, heaviest song on the album, full stop. Um, yeah, it's just good. It's a good song. They've got this annoying habit of struggling to bring their tracks home. They just can't seem to get them over the line. And this is another one they struggle to as well. It's just a weakness they've got throughout the album. But yeah, good song. I like it too. Again, the muffled drums annoy me because it could have been even punchier with those up. But a lot rockier. Why didn't they start the album with the title track? So I, I think this this puts me a, a bit in mind of Ingve, but only better because the, the, he's got a very similar. You know, I don't know whether this is. I'm assuming this is Floyd Rose rather than Rick Pierce. We could be the other way around, but the solos on this are very Malmsteenish, mm-hmm. but much shorter. And and actually, Jonathan Scott Kay's vo- vocal on this track particularly is you know not very far away from Joe Lynn Turner. Mm. I, I like his vocals on this track. There's a bit more attitude to them. I, I have to say that when I listen to Stand By Me and When The Mirror Cracks, I just think that's what you should really be doing. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Because they're, they're actually quite good at it. So anyway, the title track closes out side one and side two uh, starts with uh, a little song called Runaway. Uh, which I think is, yeah, it's, it's all right. It's an okay opener for side two. It's got a nice little um, hooky chorus. There are other songs called Runaway that are better. 
<laughs> Ain't that the truth? Yeah, it's got a nice keyboard intro. And the unfortunate thing about that is I've made up my mind within seconds of starting to listen to it where I wanted this track to go, and it didn't go there. So that's a bit of a bugger. That's my fault, not theirs. I think this is the first real example, that, well, no, second real example, because I don't like Never Gonna Love Again, of where this album falls down a bit. I'm going to use the word, and it's not been aired tonight, I'm going to use the word, this is just a bit inoffensive. <laughs> yeah. No, I get that. So track two, side two, In the Rain. I quite like this. Interestingly, I don't know whether this is a coincidence or not, but the keyboards sound a bit like rain, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> it's a pop song, isn't it? It's a pop song. Yeah. It's got a bit of a groovy beat to it. Big improver on Runaway. Richard? It's amongst my favourites. Yeah, it's atmospheric. It's a bit different. It is interesting to listen to. So midpoint of uh, side two, three quarters of the way through the album now. And we've got another rock song. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's fairly standard rock fodder, isn't it? It's, uh, it's basically about wanting to get into a girl's pants. Yeah, I, I put it on, it's obviously there, Fuck Like a Beast, isn't it? So uh, penultimate track on the album is Cold Hearts. It's a very different track, I think, to the rest of the album. Although the keyboards are there, it's, there's, it's a bit more REO Speedwagon for me. Yeah, I had Asia down. Yeah, I get that as well. I think this is, um, again, these adjectives aren't going to sound glowing. Uh, endearingly catchy is what I put down. I, I really like this. The one I, I listened to this on YouTube and it had, um, well, the version I listened to had five likes, which is um, slightly dispiriting. <laughs> no dislikes, I hasten to add, but just five likes, which is. You know, that's down at bad Steve levels, isn't it? And what I would say is people are missing out big time because this is a really, really good song. I, lo- I love the way it bounces along, bounces back in after the choruses. This is not a track nine out of ten, not in a million years. It'd be a great track too. It's a brilliant yeah. song. No, I agree. Richard? It's American radio fodder. <laughs> Steve Winwood could sing this, that kind of stuff for me. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, actually. It is very Winwood, isn't it? And, and, and sort of a bit Mark Cohen as well. Last track on the album, uh, this is called Let Go, which I thought didn't sound very dissimilar to the track of the same name done by Loudness. Yeah, we'll add Loudness to the list of bands yeah. we've compared them with. This, um, just, I mean, for context... Q5 fans would put this probably as one of their kind of defining tracks. I think it's a good finish, good finish to the album, good last track. Again, complaints about the absence of guitar. It it promised so much when the guitar started it. And then as if Floyd Rose thought, oh, well, that'll do. I'll uh, I'll fade me down. (laughs) Okay. So there we go. That is Q5, When the Mirror Cracks. Uh, highs and lows, boys. Um, Richard, let's start with you. Low, I will give to Never Gonna Love Again. And a high, the title track just shaves it from In the Rain. Steve? I don't like Runaway, but I don't like Never Gonna Love Again a little bit more. And of the big two or three, I like Stand By Me best, I think. Well, you and I are absolutely uh, in unison. 
so maybe I was maybe I was right with uh, after all, Steve, because um, I've got exactly the same high and low. So there we go. That's it. The third album in this edition of the Enter Sad Men podcast, done and dusted. Q five. When the mirror cracks from 1986. The thing we now have to do, of course, is go uh, go away and rank all of the tracks that we've reviewed over or listened to over the last uh, week or so and talked about this evening and see where it puts them puts their owners in the uh, in the Hall of Fame. So let's go and do that. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Excellent. That was a blast. And um, now we've scored these three beasts, um, and let's find out what the numbers are. Um, so, Rich, do you want to talk us through the scores that we all gave your beloved 2112? Yes. Uh, you, Steve, gave 2112 a 7.883. Mark gave it a 7.266. And I, not surprisingly, gave it the highest score of the three of us. I gave it an 8. Point oh eight three, and that gives twenty one twelve a grand total of seven point seven four four. Okay. Next up was uh, Bon Jovi, seven eight hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Rich gave it a flat seven. Mark gave it seven point eight three. I topped the shot with eight for a final score of seven point six one. And the final album of the episode was Q Five is when the mirror cracks. Mark. Yeah, so uh, Steve, you gave it a flat 7.2. Uh, Richard gave it 6.75, and I gave it a 7.25 for an average album score of 7. Point, well, if we're rounding up 7.1, 7.06, if we're going to be precise about it. Um, I mean, before we head over to the Hall of Fame, I was just taking a quick look at the the different differentiation between our scores. For 7800, we agree on on Tokyo Road broadly, and In and Out of Love broadly, but there is huge, <laughs> huge discrepancies in the rest of them. You know, The Price of Love, uh, a difference of 1.3 marks, only lonely a difference, a difference of two and a half marks, King of the Mountain, difference of two, Silent Night, a difference of four and a half. Um, <laughs> Ignore Tokyo Road for a moment because we broadly agree on that. Hardest part of the night, a difference of 2.6. Always run to you, a difference of 2.5. I don't think we've ever had an album where our marks have been so far apart on so many tracks. Mm -hmm. But the overall score, they all balance themselves out because we all kind of mark some tracks higher and some tracks lower. So actually... We're not that all that far. I mean, there's a there's a clear mark between you, Steve, and Richard's score for Bon Jovi, but actually, we're not that far away in terms of the overall average. It's the tracks. It's the tracks that polarised us. Well, I mean, it just shows that how wrong you and I were, Mark. <laughs> yes, yes, I was thinking exactly the same thing. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. We're now up to. 69 albums, count them. Uh, and where did our three tonight get in? Well, uh, When There Are Cracks by Q5 entered our Hall of Fame at now, you know, a perfectly decent number 53. Uh, it's a fair way off of the bottom, uh, which has been propped up still at this point in time uh, by Rock, until you drop by Raven. 
quite a few places up at number 32. Bon Jovi's 7800 degrees Fahrenheit comes in with its 7.61. And then five places above that, Rush's 2112 sneaks in just above Highway to Hell by ACDC. And uh, Nat's whisker short of Hart's Little Queen. Yeah, that feels about right, doesn't it? I think. See, you'll probably feel a bit disappointed that it Fahrenheit's only coming at 32. What do you mean it feels about right? It couldn't feel more wrong if it was very wrong. <laughs> 32? I mean, it's just nonsense. <laughs> Hold on, look. Don't give me a hard time, okay? I scored, you scored it eight, I scored it 7.83. Yeah. There's only one, there's only one villain in the house tonight. It's not me. Some, some decent songs, a couple of crackers, and then one of the worst produced albums we've reviewed so far on this. To the point where it's spoiled some of those songs. I mean, I'm being slightly mischievous because if you look at the albums, it's around. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's only two below Van Halen's debut. I know. It's three above physical graffiti. Yeah. And that's it. That is the end of episode 23 of the Enter Sandman podcast. Thank you very much for your company. So until next week, have a good week, and we'll see you then. All music clips featured in the Enter Sadman podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. Yeah.